Welcome to the Innovation Roundtable Insights Podcast. This episode was recorded in Copenhagen during the 2016 Innovation Roundtable Summit, where our colleague Leonard sat down with Sean Carney, Chief Design Officer and GM Business Leader of Healthcare Transformation Services at Philips. During the conversation, Sean shares his views on how design thinking methods can be used to tackle various healthcare challenges and explains Philips' approach to design thinking, branded as co-creation, with an emphasis on the benefits of having a diverse set of people and not just designers involved in creating solutions. Sean additionally explores how to collect useful data and measure progress in the early stages of a project. I'm really happy to have uh, Sean Carney with us, Chief Design Officer of Philips. Thank you. Nice to be here. I would like uh, to start uh, just with uh, right diving into how you would describe your role at uh, Philips. My role at Philips? So I, I head the design capability, the design function for Philips. And uh, I think it's a great, uh, a great role. It's one of the best jobs in the company. A uh, couple of reasons. One is that uh, obviously I'm heavily involved in a lot of the breakthrough innovations, the new thinking, um, you know, with the regular product development, but also with the new startups and new technology. And sitting centrally, I also have the opportunity to work across uh, all of our different business units. Uh, which allows me to uh, to get great insights from one business and perhaps then try and facilitate landing that across into into another business. You have uh, you have some experience, uh, to say the least, uh, with uh, design thinking at Philips. Uh, how would you describe design thinking? What what is it? Yeah. So, for one thing, we stopped calling it design thinking. I, um, when I first came into Philips, uh, I'd, I'd have some experience previously out in California working with uh, with HP of rolling out a design thinking program, and one of the battles I constantly faced was that uh, people perceived it to be a design activity. So, why were we trying to teach engineers and marketeers how to design? So we said, look, this is a bit of a ridiculous uh, problem to be solving. Let's just park that. Let's call it what it is. It's about co-creating, about bringing all the parts of the business together, uh, including your customers and potential partners as well, and using the mindset of a designer uh, to start to think about the what if, the possibilities of pulling uh, things together. And I think for me, the essence of design thinking is that a uh, very rapid uh, and optimistic view of, of pulling uh, disparate parts of an organization together, pull it, solving a problem by visualizing it and then quickly iterating on the visuals that you create. Now, when I looked up a bit uh, on the Internet, I, I found uh, a way, a description of design thinking, uh, which is, you know, you were presenting something you call co-create the, at the moment, but there's something uh, exp- Experiential flow or experience flow. Could you elaborate? How does this fit into the system? Yeah, so a, a large part of it is um, so. So you start with the premise that there's no shortage of ideas in any one company, and um, we at Philips uh, also uh, have a legacy of uh, of solving problems and solving idea and coming up with ideas. Um, so generating ideas in itself is, is not a problem. But you want to be focusing your resources and activities and efforts on sorting out, on solving the right ideas. And 
So what we decided to do early on was uh, obviously the first phase is framing the opportunity. So pulling together all of the knowledge that you've got, all of the content you already have, maybe past research, customer insights, video uh, and uh, reports and PowerPoint decks, whatever they are. But very quickly, you become buried in all of this information. Now you want to convert that information into actionable insights that you can then go into ideation on. And um, we had to find a way of structuring and organizing this. So we're dealing quite a lot, quite frequently, with customers or with patients, and patients in a hospital, for instance. So we said, well, let's walk in the shoes of that patient and then map out the opportunities, the pain points of that patient as they go through a particular clinical workflow. And um, so we uh, borrowed also here from our consumer decision journeys, which is something that happens in the consumer world quite often, where you look at how do people buy the product? So how do they first understand that they need a product? How do they go find that product? How do they shop uh, in, the, in the store or online for that product? And then how do they convert people from shopping into buying? And you map this out. So we did the same in design thinking. Uh, and by creating these huge posters, we create four-meter-long posters quite often, uh, which really kind of articulate that customer journey, that patient journey or clinician's journey. And then we map all of the information along this journey. And this is a way of collecting the sort of um, particularly what do we know, where are the gaps in our knowledge that we need to go out and source information or maybe commission some research as well. But by uh, doing it in this way, you're visualizing uh, the, uh, the information you have. And from that visualization of the information, you can get a lot more people contributing to uh, identifying the patterns, seeing the gaps, and seeing the opportunities for, uh, for creating new ideas. What I always find interesting when, when talking about design thinking or, or, or co-create, uh, let's call it that way, um, I find it interesting to, you know, companies starting with this uh, or um, and beginning to understand uh, it, starting with interviews and, but the, kind of the the real uh, challenge then in the end is or excellence in, in in user research. How do you understand the the latent and unspoken needs where you can't ask because the users they they don't know themselves. Uh, absolutely, and um, you know it's why we're very careful not to call it a process because a process kind of implies if I follow the process and I follow it properly, I'll get a great product. And uh, we heard uh, it was a nice statement earlier today that uh, give a fool a process and he'll uh, still be a fool at the end of the process. He'll just probably be a more efficient, more agile fool, but he'll still be a fool. So, you know, it's bright, shiny people that, that create bright, shiny products in the end, not bright, shiny processes. So we call it an approach. And when you frame it more as an approach, it's more about a mindset. And one of the things that we're also very careful to do is make sure that we have... Um, people with the right mindset coming into these. And that means you also need people like anthropologists and behavioral psychologists, cognitive scientists people, 
people who can not just observe but actually interpret behavior see those um, workarounds and deviations from the norm that uh, a lot of everyday people would not see. Now, that's kind of partly in a designer's training. They're not, obviously, not everybody is is good at it, but some are. But uh, we also employ within our design organization sociologists and anthropologists for this effect. How does technology affect the way you work and think about the problems that you see in the, in the world? Yeah, I think um, uh, technology for technology's sake is, is really not going to solve these problems. But if we leverage technology in the right way, it can actually um, help us experiment and, uh, and do very rapid iterations that we wouldn't have been able to do in the past. Um, you know, so the, I, I talked this morning about the uh, uh, Gartner hype cycle, as it were, And I think a lot of people were excited initially when you saw wearables come into the market and you're able to track your fitness, track your footsteps and things like that. And they've, had it, they've got more sophisticated. You can check your heart rate, your sleeping and, and things like that now. But then that uh, bubble has burst a little bit now because it's, okay, what do I do with that data? Um, how, do I, uh, how does that inform and influence my, my life? And people haven't really been able to, uh, to see the true added value of that as yet. <clears throat> But I think going forwards, um, there'll be more opportunity to, to build propositions on the back of that. Now, technology in the home, on consumers, persons, ambient technology within the home environment will allow us to build insights into how people are living their lives and find new spaces for innovation and provide us with data and insights that we just weren't able to access in the past. Now, it's a fine line because there's obviously the big brother syndrome. There's a lot of privacy issues that you've got to respect. Do I really want to share my data? Um, now, this is an issue for uh, certain age groups, certain people, certain demographics, and less so for others. Um, you know, the millennials that we talk about uh, freely share their lives on social media platforms. But um, uh, if you're a little bit older or if you're sick, perhaps you don't want to share some of those things. Um, so it's a difficult area to navigate through. But at the moment, we see it as a huge opportunity that we can very quickly prototype um, new services, new solutions, new products and put them into a test uh, situation and get real time data, real time feedback from them. I was glad you were picking up the privacy issue yourself because I'm a German and we're Germans uh, we're, we're known for, for kind of uh, questioning this and, um, and we have a long history. It's not only Germans, it's uh, yeah. in a number of countries. Um, how do you, now when we think about uh, a way this co-creational work uh, is done uh, with this iterative learning, um, how does that work with with the usual, you know, stage gate, more linear stage gate processes that that companies and, and Philips also have in the technology domains. Yeah, we've recently taken the step to integrate our co-create design thinking approach into our end-to-end -end product innovation um, stage gate process. Now, it sits at the front end, of course, um, in what we call the uh, value proposition creation phase. So this is where you're really trying to identify clearly what are the customer needs that you're, you're going to be addressing and what are the uh, requirements of this product that you're going to launch. So um, we do these sort of cycles, the, uh, the, the 
quadrant, as uh, a cloverleaf, as I put it up in our, my presentation today. We run through that right at the beginning, and it's a really powerful way of getting all the stakeholders across the value chain in the business together. So it means that you bring in your um, downstream marketeers into the beginning of the project so they can start to have a voice about how they're going to go to market, how they're going to sell. Because you may have a great piece of technology, but if further down the line there's a sales organization that doesn't know how to go to market with it, you're going to have a problem. So having them involved early helps address some of that. Um, You also have the opportunity at that point to get the voice of the customer really articulated clearly to the whole product development community who's going to be living with this for the next few months or years in some cases. So it's a really good, uh, uh, in a way, perfect start to a product development process. I'd be interested, like the starting point, really the the front end of the development is, is, is characterized by design thinking. What other methodologies or mindsets are, are taking over from that in the later process of... of yeah, so we, we've got uh, still tension in terms of, um, you know, when we're in the software world particularly, we, we've adopted um, scaled agile um, uh, ways of working in our, our software. So you're working in sprints uh, and cycles in that way. Um, And again, we think that design thinking is complementary there, particularly in making sure that your requirements documents at the beginning, your hypothesis that you start the process with is a robust one and it's built on sound understanding of the the user needs that you're going to be addressing with this product. Similarly, we uh, are trying to accelerate product innovation. Uh, So we've got lean startup uh, going as well. And again, we, we believe that design thinking is very complementary to this and we bring it in at the beginning. And um, you know, as you move towards your minimum viable product, as we just heard, um, you um, have a risk if you, if you don't understand the value proposition, if you don't understand clearly the needs, then your minimum viable product can end up um, proliferating to address all of the needs of all of the feedback that you get from that test market. So um, the, uh, the design thinking approach allows you to gather that input that you're getting back from your minimum viable product, organize it and prioritize it and cluster it so that you can then go forward with uh, a more scalable solution as well. What I find interesting, I've been talking more in, in those more deeply deep interviews uh, to, to other people uh, before and and one of them from the industrial space, he, he was describing a problem uh, that especially now when the shares of digital and products increase, but you have still have hardware components and software components, yeah. that the development, uh, they run in different speeds. Right. And, uh, and how, do you, uh, how do you cope with that? I don't know if you have any experiences on this. No, we were, we're living that uh, reality as well. We have um, big uh, clinical hardware, medical hardware, so the MRIs and CTs, which take a long time in product development uh, uh, circumstances. Um, and then you've got software, which is running on the back of that as well. Um, so, of course, you have to have an integrated project uh, management team. You have to be looking at your software portfolio 
in alignment with your hardware portfolio and um, making sure that you can anticipate those future uses and uh, uh, processing capabilities that you'll need in the hardware and also the software that's going to enable that. But yeah, in reality, uh, for the moment at least, you have a little bit the two worlds running in parallel of um, scaled agile and waterfall uh, product development processes. And um, you have to uh, manually bridge between the two for the moment. Especially now we're talking about healthcare. Um, It's it's a highly regulated uh, market because it's it's involving humans and... uh, what what is how is are those iterative learning methodologies be it uh, co-create or design thinking or be it the lean startup methodologies how do they conflict or where is the tension between regulation and compliance internally but also outside regulation with industry regulation yeah so um, first of all it's a lot easier to drive these projects if you're working with a healthcare provider with the medical um, knowledge. Um, Now, we have medical capabilities and knowledge inside the company to avoid us, of course, making uh, any big mistakes, but um, uh, they also help guide uh, a lot of our product development. Uh, One of my um, real kind of associates is our chief medical officer. We go visit customers frequently together, um, and we'll work together with him to then find uh, the appropriate customer to then co-create with, to co-develop with. And this could be a thought leader in cardiology or uh, neonatology or intensive care. We'll bring those thought leaders in and then we'll, um, we'll start to build uh, propositions on the back of that. Um, now, of course, launching into a market uh, where you're going to expose it to patients is, of course, there's a regulated process by which you have to go through that. You have to do your due diligence. You have to get um, uh, the checkpoints in place as you go through that. There is really no way of avoiding that. But if you do it effectively, and we have a number of people who are very good at this, then um, you can work with the regulators, particularly in the new digital innovation spaces. The regulators are recognizing that they need to help facilitate speeding up the time it takes to develop new digital propositions. And so they're much more open uh, than maybe they have in the past to helping uh, in industry accelerate some of these things. But I recognize it's very difficult for a startup who doesn't have the relationship um, to be able to do this. Um, so that's where, again, we like to uh, partner with these startups to, uh, to help them as well come to market a little bit quicker. What is especially interesting, at least from my point of view, uh, you'll have a much more detailed point of view, is the different layers of, of it's you know customers and then another customer then users and, and end users at the end yeah. uh, and some are you know and some some roles are kind of uh, kind of floating into each other and and some are clear customers and clear users how how does that affect the whole uh, customer journey this complexity yeah, I, I talked about it a little bit in my talk this morning that, um, you know, if we said, OK, we're going to be very patient centric, we want to deliver better quality of care to the patient, improve the patient experience. A few years back, we, we did that um, and we had some very nice solutions, but we weren't getting them into the market. They were great ideas, but they never resulted in anything changing in the marketplace. So the patient didn't benefit from our great ideas. So we looked at where the pain points were, what's stopping these innovations succeeding. 
And you start to then appreciate the role of the nursing staff, perhaps, the role of the radiologist, the role of the attending physician. Uh, And then as you go deeper, okay, you've got the medical staff now aligned, but the the guy who's running the hospital or the uh, healthcare service um, hasn't understood where the value for him is going to come from or for her. And so you then have to map out all of these stakeholders. And when we do this now, as we map these customer journeys, uh, these experience journeys, they have multiple tracks on them. Um, so we, everybody from the CEO of an organization right down to uh, maybe it's the cleaning and operating staff. And it's the patient, but it's the people around the patient. Um, you know, if it's a, a newborn baby, then it's obviously the two parents or that, that are alongside them, but maybe the grandparents as well or extended family. So you can end up with a very extensive set of um, uh, roadmaps, as it were, for the experience. And then you have to filter. You have to decide, you know, who are the winners, who are the losers, who can stop this or slow down the implementation and what's the issue for them and work with them to, to resolve that. And by visualizing all this on one of these huge posters that I talk about, we're able to really clearly see where those pain points are and make sure we're addressing them early enough in the process that it doesn't disrupt the innovation flow. What is your experience? Where does you know the, the co-creator design thinking approach and lean startup approach, where does it work well and in what areas doesn't it work that well? Yeah, so far it's it's working pretty well with digital propositions. So as you start to get into the internet of everything, um, so when you're connecting um, uh, your coffee maker or your um, uh, heart rate monitor or your weighing scale, um, then it really forces, by putting design thinking at the front of Lean Startup, it really forces you to ask the question, why? You know, why am I connecting my coffee maker? I can go to my coffee machine at the moment and get a cup of coffee with the press of a button. Do I really need to find my cell phone in order to get a cup of coffee in the morning? Um, so it asks those questions and uh, makes you answer them before you start getting carried away with developing your first minimum viable product. So it's really that patient centricity, that people, that user centricity, that's core to design thinking that really, I think, complements uh, the lean startup approach. In design thinking, spaces play, play a role also. How do spaces change or how do spaces develop at Philips to support kind of the design thinking approach? Yeah, this is an ongoing process for us as well. Um, Early on, we did a lot of benchmarking. Um, uh, Prior to joining Philips, I also uh, worked with uh, IDEO, um, uh, with the D School at Stanford, and then uh, later on with SAP. And uh, SAP, as you know, very closely connected with the D School and uh, Happner Institute. And um, it became very clear that uh, the kind of space that you need is a little bit different than your typical corporate environments. Um, So I had a good opportunity when I joined Philips to relocate one of the design teams, one of our biggest design teams in Eindhoven, from a freestanding building into a building which was really now in the heart of our research community where we've got all of our primary research activities. We took over an old industrial lab, um, including lead-lined walls where they developed x-ray equipment and everything, very cool. And we give it a very light touch, so it's got a very much a, a kind of industrial New York loft, a little bit aesthetic to it. And the part of the thinking there was it shouldn't be precious. 
People should be not afraid of making a mess, pinning things on the wall, writing on the wall at times. And um, it should feel different than your typical day-to-day corporate environment. And uh, this was uh, before the Googles and Facebooks and everybody were kind of uh, reinventing the workplace in that way. Um, and we've, we've done a couple of iterations on it. Um, and um, it's not just about throwing a few rugs on the floor and having comfy sofas and beanbags. It's deliberately thinking about the experience that you want. So we have um, stand-up tables where we do very quick meetings and then break and walk away. Every surface is writable. You can pin things on it. Um, we have a lot of um, uh, components, uh, whether it's uh, old cardboard boxes, Lego bricks, uh, modules that we can pull together to do rapid prototyping with. Uh, we have tinkering rooms, 3D printing rooms and things like that, all available so that if you want to start to build something, prototype something, you've got everything to hand and you can pull it together. And then a really core part of all of this is having a central cafe, coffee area, where all the teams who are working in your building at any given time can come together. And with that, there's some watch outs. You know, I mean, we've got um, uh, sheikhs from Saudi Arabia, maybe rubbing shoulders with the CEO of a, a, a major healthcare provider from the U.S., and you've got your students who are just there for six months uh, on placement chatting openly alongside them. So you've got to be a little careful at times on, on how that works. But overall, it's fun, it's engaging, and uh, the atmosphere is very different uh, than you would find in your typical day-to-day office. Especially, uh, and please correct me if, that, if you're using it differently, especially in the, in the beginning, using the design thinking approach, um, it's it's really it's really qualitative. You know, a lot of information that you try to understand. Uh, how do you measure uh, in terms on how, how, what are the goals and objectives, but also how do you measure progress in in, in, the, in those projects in the early phases? Yeah. So um, uh, this was uh, a bit of a fear at first. Was um, is it too fluffy? Uh, is it really prescriptive? And uh, yes, I mean, at the core of it, there's a lot of empathy, a lot of uh, ethnographic uh, uh, mapping. Uh, those unmet needs are not going to be there in statistics very often. Um, but what we found, particularly when we're looking at clinical or patient experiences, for instance, with designing an emergency room um, uh, of a major trauma center in, in the U.S., um, so we knew we needed to sell this in to the C-suite uh, in terms of efficiency and return on investment for, for what we were going to be uh, designing here. So we put in real-time tracking sensors uh, throughout all the corridors. We put sensors on the, uh, on the trolleys that would uh, be crashing through the door with patients on them. Uh, we put wearables on the nursing staff and um, uh, that allowed us to collect real data From that, we could see heat spots, bottlenecks, we could see ambient noise, ambient light, and then look at the impact that was having on the patient experiences and the efficiency of, uh, of the operation there. And once you've started to collect data in that volume, we're fortunate because we're sitting in amongst all the research uh, uh, people in, in Philips. So we could pull in data scientists who could then start to analyze the data and start to build predictive algorithms. So when we said, well, if we modify a certain area, if we constrict the flow here, open up this wall, what would happen then? And we start to model new behaviors and envision how that's going to go forwards. 
And because you've got real data, quantitative data, alongside your qualitative evaluations, it's a lot easier to sell the concept in. Now, with all of this, uh, and you've been briefly mentioning it in, in the short presentation, and we've been briefly talking about it, uh, who, who uh, your first customers will be, the lead customers, uh, a thought leader uh, was one of the... Uh, but especially when we're not talking about uh, understanding the B2B relationships, the customer, but understanding the users yeah. uh, at the end. There are a lot, lot more of them. Um, how do you make sure that, because it's a small number of people, you, you, you have resources to look into more or less, how do you make sure those are representative? Yeah, so, um, you know, this comes down to segmentation. And um, if you have studied segmentation, you know that segmentation results in maybe three or four segment types, stereotypes, phenotypes of different people. But it's based on uh, quantified data, quantitative data. Um, So it's a qualitative presentation, but it's quantification uh, behind it as well. So you may do interviews with 10,000 people in order to identify uh, the similarities and then cluster them into these segments. And by then um, identifying those segments, you can go out and you can do co-creation with a certain segment or profile of people that you're going to be addressing. And that's more the way that we would work in the consumer portfolio if we're designing perhaps new grooming or beauty products or kitchen appliances and things like that. Now, you've, you've been mentioning it in the presentation, I think, and we've been briefly talking about the multidisciplinarity of team or cross-functional teams being really important, especially also in the connected, connected world uh, in, in healthcare. What are the challenges? I, I'm, now I'm curious about the team dynamics. It's different kind of people yeah. working together very closely. Uh, what are the challenges there? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you, you have to respect that it's not going to be easy um, and you need to invest in um, uh, how you're orchestrating the day. If you're doing a co-create workshop and you've got people coming together, give time for people to introduce themselves, their backgrounds. And uh, we have uh, various warming up exercises where people can talk about their fears, their anxieties, their inhibitions. And then the tools that we deploy are also uh, helping and enabling people to feel like they can contribute. And uh, what we also ask them to be is pure to themselves as well. Um, You look at this problem with a different set of eyes if you're a physicist than you would if you're um, a graphic designer or if you're a software coder or if uh, you're coming from, let's say, a field called service engineer. Um, So we want them to bring their knowledge, bring their background with them, But now they're there to look at the issue uh, from a consumer perspective or a patient perspective as well. Now I'm curious how, looking at a broader approach of of this mindset, of this co-creational mindset or design thinking mindset, how do you create impact uh, beyond the R&D and development phases? And do you want to create impact there other places? Yeah, so since we rolled this out, we've also been called upon to run co-create sessions with, well, we did a leadership conference uh, within the company, so the top 200 leaders from around the organization. We ran a complete session with with, with everybody there. Uh, We've run uh, co-create sessions to solve issues around uh, HR, how to create a vision for our human resource uh, community going forwards. 
So it can be applied to a number of different problems. I think most exciting is um, over the last two years, we've been using it as part of our sales acquisition, so part of the funnel for bringing new customers into Philips. And um, that started with uh, a conversation with uh, Franz Van Houten, our CEO, and he asked us to, uh, to run the C-suite workshops. And basically what we do is a two-day workshop where we have a top-to-top dialogue. Um, we have uh, the executive committee or, or C-suite of a company or a customer uh, come in, or it could be a government, in some cases a health uh, department, um, we talk about the global challenges of delivering healthcare, the macro challenges, and then we go more specifically about the micro challenges in their environment, their country or county, or their health system that they're servicing. And then we talk about, uh, from our point of view, what we see as the challenges. And we then give them an insight into some of the opportunities that we've got in terms of new technologies, new services, new solutions. And then we, we formulate a common view on where we could work together. And we do this using the design thinking Cloverleaf and do this over a two-day period. Um, it's very engaging. Um, these guys uh, turn up in their suits and ties and very quickly they've got their sleeves rolled up, they're scribbling on post-it notes and they're building Lego models and all sorts of things. So they get very engaged and very enthusiastic and usually we've got a pretty much 100%, 100% hit rate. When they've been through that, we get commissioned to then run projects, co-create in developing new solutions or large-scale projects or managed equipment sales where we go in and uh, redefine a hospital uh, uh, system. Now, Sean, last, last question, and uh, I'm happy that you have a couple of years' experience in, in business. Um, why hasn't it been like that before, this mindset? Why hasn't product development not been like that before? I think, you know, we've, we've tended to be kind of partitioned in functional silos too often. And whilst uh, I think a lot of people have been advocating to break down the silos and work more end-to-end, um, I think you do have communication issues between an engineer, perhaps a marketeer, a salesperson, uh, a key account manager or a field service engineer. It's not easy to articulate your point of view and to be heard. Uh, by the different partners. Um, so what we do is, uh, I, can, I, I think design can act as a little bit of Switzerland in all of this. We can be neutral ground. Uh, we don't have an, a political agenda. We care about the customer. And what we try and do is get everybody's noses pointing in the same direction towards satisfying, identifying and satisfying that customer need, finding the pain points and then working together to resolve those pain points. And um, in the past, that might have been the role of a marketeer, um, but you had interpretation issues, you know, because they were perhaps um, hearing one thing, writing it down. You've got the Chinese whisper syndrome that by the time it gets to the person who can solve the problem, actually it's got completely lost in the mix. So by pulling the engineer who can solve the issue, putting them together with the, the person who has the problem, the patient or the user, actually you create an energy that would be, not be there if they just got a brief passed down through the marketing department. And I get on very well with marketing, by the way. Some of my best <laughs> friends are marketeers. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was a really inter interesting conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, the video version of this podcast can be accessed via innovationroundtable.online. 
The Innovation Roundtable online network is your portal to a wide variety of exclusive content, including video presentations, interviews, insights reports, and articles. Not only that, innovationroundtable.online is also a place where you can connect with other corporate innovators, share experiences, request collaborations, and gain inspiration from your peers. Our network is exclusively for innovation practitioners and large firms. So visit innovationroundtable.online to discover more and request your seven-day free trial account.